I've always thought about it and talked to kids about it in terms of mental hygiene, taking care and cleaning up your mind, cleaning up if you're having anxiety about worries about concerns about things that you're doing something about them mm-hmm. and not letting them fester. Yeah. So what is the definition of mental health that you give these young people? Mental health isn't having a problem. It's how you address the challenges in your life. Much like physical health isn't having cancer and diabetes and a broken leg and like an injury, it's about how you take care of your physical health. Mental health from from the start you have to have a clear definition of it. And if you don't have a clear definition of it, you end up with so much vagueness and so much self-diagnosing and so many confusing aspects of it that it has to start there. Hey everybody, welcome back to Fill in the Blanks. We are talking about something that you've heard me discuss before, something that I'm very concerned about. I've been concerned about for a long time, got more concerned about during and after the pandemic, and am really concerned about going forward. That's the mental health of our young people right now. Issues with young people, preteens, older teens, and college students are really on the rise. Mental health challenges in children, adolescents, and young adults are real, and they are widespread. Now, a lot of people think this is a product of the pandemic. Sadly, it's not. We really started seeing spikes as early as 2010, 2011, and the pandemic and all of the quarantine just kind of threw gas on that fire. Young people are struggling with feelings of helplessness, depression, thoughts of suicide, and Actual suicide has increased over the past decade, according to Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. In some comments he made in December 2021, he and I have sat down and talked about this face-to-face, and it is a growing concern. The Surgeon General's advisory also stated before the COVID-19 pandemic that mental health challenges were the leading cause of disability and poor life outcomes in young people. You wouldn't think to hear that talking about America, but it's true. The pandemic just further exacerbated those challenges, as I said. Youth mental health is just trending in the wrong direction. Now, almost every measure of mental health is getting worse for every teenage demographic, and it's happening across the country. It's worse in some areas than others, but it's really not letting anybody off the hook. So how do parents and schools play a role? What do we do about it? As young adults reveal how they're really feeling today, parents across America, if you've got kids in this window, you really want to pay attention. If you're one of these kids, if you're a college student right now, you really want to pay attention today because it will make a difference and it could be a difference between life and death. I'm speaking with the wellness director, Geffen Academy at UCLA, Ross Zabo. Now, Ross spent over half of his life finding ways to make mental health approachable. That is so important, because you know the stigma surrounding mental health is so wrong, but yet so real. 
And as the wellness director at Geffen Academy at UCLA, he is currently working on changing the way students learn about their mental health in grades 6 through 12. Now, his company, Human Power Project, has also developed a curriculum used by over 250,000 people, quarter of a million people of all ages. And he believes we can teach mental health the same way we teach physical health. We can use lessons to teach people about brain development, vocabulary, coping skills, healthy relationships, and how to help others, and most importantly, how to take care of their minds. So, Ross, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. You and I spent some time together on a show previously, and I was so fascinated by what you're doing proactively. I said at the end that I really wanted to have some uninterrupted time to talk about this because I think you are on the cutting edge of what we need to be doing. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a lot of work. As you know, this, these issues aren't straightforward. They're complicated. And I think there's a lot of missing pieces. And I think education around mental health in schools is one of the missing pieces. Well, I do too. And when you talk about wellness, with these young people. Talk about what you mean. Give me the mission statement so all of our listeners can understand what it is you're doing. Because as I said to you earlier, I think it's a model that people should adopt across the country. I think it has some real tenets in it for parents. Talk about, I guess I call it your mission statement, what you're doing. I think the easiest way to break it down is if you think about physical health, we start teaching about physical health really pre-kindergarten. And we have lessons about physical health and how you mature and how you grow and how you change all the way through adulthood. There's even physical health programs at every business and company in the world um, for people who are adults. But where you really start setting up habits is when you're young. And you know the second largest period of brain growth is between the ages of 12 and 25. And we know that what you do in that time period really matters. It, it really makes a difference. And so the mission at my school and the mission with my curriculum is to teach skills about mental health the same way you would learn about physical health. So it's not a therapeutic approach. It's not sitting down and analyzing yourself. It's understanding, here's the definition of mental health. These are coping mechanisms. Here's the mental health literacy or vocabulary you can use. Here's how you spot differences between normal emotions and mental health disorders. Here's how you help a friend. But it's taking a public health approach that already exists for physical health and adapting it to mental health. Let's talk about that for a minute because I want to put some specifics on this. We're not talking about asking or empowering kids to self-diagnose. No, 100%. But I think sometimes people can jump to the conclusion when we say we're not talking about therapy, we're talking about education. And you're right. We start teaching people about their physical health very early on. What you're talking about here is making part of the curriculum to have classes where you sit down and talk to kids about what mental health is, what mental illness is. Are you talking about red flags? What are you talking about? Let yeah. me just let you say. Sure. <laughs> so let's start with the actual definition of mental health. In, in a large parts of today's society, uh, most people think the word mental health, the words mental health means someone who has a problem. They don't think about how you take care of yourself. And so there's been this movement of, do we change the words? Do we call it brain health? Do we call it brain development? What do we call it? 
most young people today are still using the words mental health, I think it's important to give them a clear definition. Mental health isn't having a problem. It's how you address the challenges in your life. Much like physical health isn't having cancer and diabetes and a broken leg and like an injury, it's about how you take care of your physical health. Mental health, from, from the start, you have to have a clear definition of it. And if you don't have a clear definition of it, you end up with so much vagueness and so much self-diagnosing and so many confusing aspects of it that it has to start there. So we do a couple lessons just on, hey, this is what mental health is and this is what it isn't so that we're on the same page. I've always thought about it, and I'm not suggesting we use this term because you guys have this pretty well figured out, but I've always thought about it and talked to kids about it in terms of mental hygiene, of taking care and cleaning up your mind, cleaning up if you're having anxiety about worries about concerns about things that you're doing something about them mm -hmm. and not letting them fester. Yeah. So what is the definition of mental health that you give these young people and how early on can you give them a definition that they really grasp? So the definition we use, the technical definition we use is from the World Health Organization, which is a person who's able to manage normal amounts of stress, contribute to their community, um, and like be productive in, in different ways, right? The, the definition we use in school informally is that mental health isn't having a problem, it's how you address challenges in your life. You can start that definition as young as, as kindergarten. And if you start teaching it in a productive, proactive way, the same way you would teach physical health, then it allows young people to feel like they're a part of their mental health. What we tend to do in our society is wait till someone has a problem then tell them something's wrong, and then you're not a part of that. You're trying to react or respond to your issue instead of being proactive and, and looking at it from a place of like, okay, this is an aspect of my life. And that's a critical difference. I get so many letters, not letters, but emails from young people, particularly high school, but some middle school also, that say, I don't know when I have a problem that has risen to the level that I need to ask for help from a school counselor or a pastor or even a friend. They've asked me to talk about it on the air before. How do they know when something has become pathological or abnormal? How do you answer that question if you get asked that? When the level of whatever you're experiencing, whether it's eating disorders, depression, anxiety, wh whatever it is, because there's so many different options for them, reaches a point where you can't do what you typically do. We can't say normal because there is no normal when it comes to the, the variance of, of right. each individual, their environment, their biology, everything, right? But when whatever you're experiencing reaches a point where you can no longer do what you typically do for an extended amount of time, that's when you need help. If you think about this though, it's the same thing with physical health. How many times have we seen young people be like, I'm not sure if my ankle sprained or if it's broken, but I can't run the same way I used to run. And I can't do the same things I used to do. And yes, there are still people resistant to telling a coach or telling a parent, but at some point it gets to a point where they're like, hey, I just can't do what I used to do. Let's get an x-ray and see if it's broken or if it's sprained and what do I need to do about it? So again, it's using that similar public health approach of, you can't decide it on your own, but when it gets to a point where you can't do what you're typically doing, that's where it's time to talk about it. Yeah.
The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. I love the way you say it. I've always told people that if it's interfering with your pursuit of healthy goals or your pattern of healthy living, then it's time to raise your hand. I love the fact that you say it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's an eating disorder or anxiety or depression, loneliness, whatever it is, if there's something going on with you mentally or emotionally that's interfering with what you typically do or the pursuit of goals that you have set, it can be something as simple as an inability to concentrate the way that you had before. And I love the fact that you say for an extended period of time, because everybody has a bad day. Mm-hmm. You wake up and it's like, I, I should have never gotten out of bed today. <laughs> this just wasn't my day. But then tomorrow you get a good night's sleep and you wake up and you're good to go again. So it's about patterns. And if something persists, then it's time to say, hey, but what you're doing, and this is why I think this is such a model that people need to follow, is you're talking about it before they're in crisis. I've always said the most difficult thing I've ever done is to talk about drinking with a drunk while they're drunk. Mm -hmm. You should have done that some other time. Even married couples, I say, look, deal with your issues when you're not in crisis. And the tendency is, oh, look, let's just let sleeping dogs lie. Things are going smooth right now. I don't want to bring up an issue. But that's when you need, when things are calm and smooth, that's what happens when you're putting this in the school curriculum. Before somebody is feeling anxious or depressed or lonely, with those feelings, these kids have taught me they also feel conspicuous. They think, everybody can see this on me, and then the stigma comes. But you're talking about it as part of a routine curriculum where nobody feels targeted, nobody feels called out. You're just talking about, hey, these are some things that you can maybe use later. Well, and let's dive into the specifics of that, because that is an important part. So there's two ways to do that. One is to actually create mental health literacy or, or mental health vocabulary. And I'll, and I'll talk about that first. If you think about physical health literacy, people know the difference between a sprained ankle and a broken leg, the difference between having a cold versus having the flu, unless, of course, you're male. Because when I have a cold, it's, it's hard for me. You know, yeah. and I need a lot of love and support. You have and, a man cold. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it's tough. Um, but people have diagnostic criteria for diabetes and cancer. We need to do a similar thing where we set up different categories for mental health so that a kid understands everyday stress is not the same thing as an anxiety disorder. What's happening now is really confusing for kids because one kid will have an anxiety disorder and someone else will say to him or her, just, hey, calm down. But the opposite of having anxiety is not being calm. It's being able to see reality. The opposite of being stressed out, sure, could be calm. Uh, a lot of people are confusing going through a breakup with having clinical depression. They're not the same things. Or they confuse having an environment that they grew up in being traumatic with 
having a mental health disorder, they can be similar, but they're not the same thing. And then developmental disabilities exist somewhere in these categories too. So we teach concretely from as young as we can, there are different categories for mental health challenges. And then depending on what category you're in, it's gonna determine what you need to do about it. So that's one thing. The, the second thing about how you manage it, uh, if you think about a physical health spectrum, we tend to think of a physical health spectrum as there are people who don't have physical health issues, or you choose a physical, let's, let's back up, let's take a physical health issue. Let's say um, it's somebody with a, a torn ACL. Well, then they start on the far end of they can't balance that, right? They need surgery, and after surgery, they may need constant assistance to balance it because they're going through physical therapy. And then they might use help to balance it, and then it might be not as difficult to balance, and then it goes away, it's, it's, they don't have to think about their ACL anymore. We have to treat mental health in the same way. Okay, so you have anxiety. Where are you on that spectrum? Do you just need help? You just need therapy? You just need medication? Okay, is the anxiety so much that you can't balance it at all? That you need you know, to be in a residential facility? Or is the anxiety so low level that it's just difficult for you to sleep tonight, but you'll be okay tomorrow? What we tend to do with the mental health spectrum is we try to jam everything on it. So if you think about the mental health spectrum most people use, they think you're sane or you're not sane. But in between that, they're jamming depression, schizophrenia, eating disorders, bipolar disorder, everything on the same spectrum. We don't do that with physical health. With physical health, we choose one issue and then we measure functionality. With mental health, we tend to say you're, you're sane or you're not. And the problem with that is, you know, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 16. I'm also sane. I can't be on two ends of that spectrum. So those are concrete ways to change uh, vocabulary. But the biggest thing that changes it is having a teacher normalize it in the classroom. So each summer at UCLA, we do a mental health teacher training institute because there are correct and incorrect ways for a teacher to normalize mental health. The incorrect way is for someone to go in and be seeking validation and to overshare and to follow a, a guideline that's not healthy for them where they need the kids to support them. The correct way to do it is to only share experiences of your life that you process to make sure that it has a learning objective that's relevant to the classroom, to use personal examples in an educational way. And when you do that, what you're talking about, the kids feeling conspicuous or that there's other things happening, it normalizes it for the whole building, not just that classroom. And then they see someone who is functioning, hopefully their teacher's functioning, um, <laughs> who is sharing that they went through something and the kids see, oh, this is a part of life as opposed to, again, waiting until it's crisis mode and then trying to normalize it. You're normalizing it before that. Yeah, I think back to Psych 101 when we went through the section on abnormal psychology or when we took abnormal psych in grad school. There is that tendency to get every disorder that you read about. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody mm -hmm. personalizes it. Have you found in creating the vocabulary, creating the glossary, that there's a short burst of everybody thinking, oh, I, I think I am anxious. I think maybe I am depressed. So there's a couple ways to manage that. The first one is to list kind of the most, I, I just did this with a seventh grade class on Friday. It was a, 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 a lesson I was teaching to seventh graders who are what, 12 and 13? Yeah. And what you do in it is you don't give them all the symptoms of what the, from the DSM-5. Because if you give all the symptoms from the DSM-5, well, then easily any yeah, you, of us could sit there. Yeah, and you're like, going to oh, find yeah. a few for sure. That sounds like me. You give the main symptoms and you emphasize that it has to be extreme. 
for a diagnostic criteria. But before that, you go over who can actually diagnose people. So I have a little slide where I'm like, this is who can diagnose people. Psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, counselors, and that's it. And then we do a slide of who can't diagnose you. The internet, TikTok, a song, a meme, your friend, your family. And they say, but what if my family is a psychiatrist? Even if that's the case, they should still be sending you to someone who's not your uncle. Um, you know, and go over, you go over the criteria first of what can actually happen. And then when you discuss the specific disorders, you don't give all the symptoms. You give the main ones, but you emphasize you have to not be doing the things you typically do. And what I've seen, even in that seventh grade class, was kids kind of having a sense of relief where they're like, oh, okay, that's not me. But I do see this in, you know, someone else. Yeah, it's so great that you're doing visuals with that because even people that do get a hold of the DSM-5 criteria, they read the things that jump out at them, but they skip the parts down below, which are low down on the list, which say, okay, this has to be present for six months. It can't be secondary to some type of medication. They got all that stuff that's not such interesting reading. They just do the bullet points and mm -hmm. check them off. But somebody needs to explain. And the way you're doing it is great. They're not getting diagnosed by TikTok or... Well, they are. <laughs> well, yeah, they are. But they need to understand that's not valid. Yeah. What is the outcome criteria when you do this sort of thing as part of the curriculum, how do you determine that, okay, this has landed, we've inoculated these kids to not being oblivious to this, we've put this up on a level with physical health, they've got the glossary, they've got the vocabulary, they've got the awareness, what's the outcome criteria? How do you determine, okay, we're there? I love this question because I think a lot of people think, oh, you teach this in the school so your kids must have less stress or they must sleep more, or they must, you know, have some like magical uh, ability, right? And, and the reality is, if we could change human behavior with this classroom, I wouldn't even be in this studio. I would be in sold out arenas. Oh yeah. Like magically fixing human behavior. What our graduates who go through this program for, you know, depending seven to four years say, when they get to college is that they're far more prepared than the students and the roommates and everyone else they interact with. They can identify mental health, they, they're no, there's no stigma for them to talk about it. They uh, can access resources quicker, and they just have a, a much better way of knowing what they should do to balance. Do all of them do it? No. But when we teach physical health, not everyone does all of the skills that they learn to take care of their physical health either. So the outcomes we are looking for from a public health perspective is, what is their level of mental health literacy? What is the definition of mental health? What is their identification tools for coping mechanisms? And what, are their, what is their ability to understand what they can or cannot do for a friend? And I, I can't emphasize that part enough, Dr. Phil, because kids are in the role of crisis management every night. I taught a class a, a couple months ago. I have an advanced wellness class. There are 23 students in that class, and they wanted to talk about suicide. I was like, okay, we can do that. So I asked them first, how many of you know uh, someone who's thought about suicide? All their hands went up. Then I said, how many of you know someone who attempted suicide? All 23 students' hands went up, which seems like a lot. So then I asked, how many of you know someone who took their own life? And all their hands went up. And for the next hour, 
these students shared stories about trying to keep their friends alive, texting, calling, all kinds of levels of responsibility that they just shouldn't have. And for them, what I think one of the most poignant things one of my students shared was she said, we just live in a constant state of fear. Because yeah, we were able to help this one person who didn't take their own life. We don't hear from them often about it again. We don't know if they're gonna do it again. And no one talks to us about what it's like to be a friend in this situation and what we're supposed to do. So when we say that like, you know, a lot of times we say, oh, people aren't talking about this. Young people are talking about it and they're relying on each other in the unhealthiest ways. And so one of the biggest measures has to be teaching young people what they can and can't do in friendships because it, it's actually traumatizing them. It is a terrible burden and it's above their pay grade, but they need to know what they can do. We've been really focused on getting the word out on this new 988 number. If for no other reason, it's a number people can remember. It's like 911 and the Suicide Prevention Hotline. Who knows that number in a crisis? They got to go try to find it, da, 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 da. but everybody can remember 988. We're up in over 200 cities and adding cities all the time. It's gone better in launch than was anticipated because you always expect there's going to be outages and drops and it's going to be sent to the wrong center and mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. But I've run into the same thing where these kids are trying to do things way over their skill level. It doesn't always go well. And they've got survivor's guilt. They blame themselves for, they play the what if game. What if I'd said this? What if I'd said that? What if I'd, what if, what if, what if? And it can really be traumatizing to them. Those aren't all happy endings. No. Also, you know, and I know this can be controversial. I don't know that every suicide is preventable. I really I don't. I, I have so many friends who've lost kids and it was them waking up that day searching how to take their own life and doing it a couple hours later. There was no buildup. You know, the model that I talk about from my perspective, my life, where I was, had clinical depression for months, had all the signs, did all the, you know, like there were things people may have been able to see. That doesn't really exist for everyone anymore. No. And if someone really wants to do it, I don't know that we can say everything is preventable. We should obviously try to prevent everything. But these young people, if they're not taught how to talk to their friends about mental health and what they can and can't do. And, and you know, the easiest analogy I give them is if you were ever walking with your friend and your friend broke and fell and broke their leg, you wouldn't think, let me go to CVS and get things for a cast and come back and set their leg and put a cast on them. You call 911 right away. Your friend's mental health has times where the only thing you can do is call 988 or call a professional or get an adult to help because you can't manage it. I think part of it is a mindset of shifting from telling is tattling to I want to do something to help my friend, to save my friend's life, to do something that can really make a difference. Because there is the stigma, and I think a lot of times kids think, am I going to overreact, and my friend's going to think I ratted them out, or are they going to wind up? getting 5150 and hate me forever. I think what 
you're talking about here in letting people know kind of where the guardrails are, it takes the pressure off of them. They need to understand, I would rather risk losing a friend than losing a friend's life. That's a big difference. Uh, And they have to be taught that. You know, I think uh, because the person who is suicidal is calling them and saying, please don't tell anyone. I'm only telling you this and I won't kill myself tonight if you don't tell someone. And so the guilt level there, the responsibility of taking care of someone else's life is so high that it's hard for them to take action. I will say that we have been fortunate at my school for every student who has had suicidal thoughts or been suicidal, we have at least two or three students who have called administrators, whoever they need to call, anytime in the middle of the night, whenever it is, and been like, hey, I'm worried about this person. This isn't okay. And I don't attribute that just to our program because I think that's you know uh, a little grandiose, but it has to be part of it. Normalizing mental health in that school environment has given them the, the ability to act and the ability to take um, ownership in a way that, that they may not have without that education, it's, it's, it's similar to physical health. If you taught a school constantly about physical health, when, when someone falls in the playground or something else, they know, hey, this person's hurt. Let me tell someone who can help them. And, and I do think this can, this can happen in this country. I think what's been happening for so long is we just keep pointing out all the ways it can't happen. And, and I've had the, I went to the, the uh, first ever Youth Mental Health Summit at the White House in May and talk to Dr. Murthy and, and President Biden. And I think there's, there's political will there now, but there's always the, the big questions of, you know, how can we not do this? And I keep seeing people naming all the barriers instead of just naming the solutions. And that's, that's frustrating to me. Let me ask you this. I don't know if this is an answerable question. And I'm pulling up some numbers to look at. You know the numbers, but I want people to have a grasp of the gravity of this problem. But since 2011, 62% increase in depression for older teens, 189% increase for preteens, 70% increase in suicide for older teens, 151% increase for preteens. Why do you think that we're seeing these spikes, these increases in anxiety, depression, suicide. Why do you think it's happening? I think there are a lot of different sources for it. If, if you look at 2011 and that 2012 era, what else, what else changed in our society at that time? It was kids getting cameras that could then take selfies. It was social media uh, growing in certain ways. And I, you know, we, can't over, we can't understate the role of technology and social media in all of these mental health issues. It is one of the largest contributing factors. Well, I have this theory. I've gone back and timelined this out. 08, 09, it's like big C-130 cargo planes flew over the United States and dropped smartphones on the entire population. And at that point, it's like the entire young population went from this to this. They were full up, eyes looking around, seeing what's going on, and they just dropped their head to this screen. At that point, they stopped living their lives and started watching people live their lives. Mm -hmm. The problem is 
the lives they're watching lived are often fantasies. They're not really that way. Yeah. There's a fuselage up in San Francisco that isn't a real airplane that is booked in 15-minute intervals, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that influencers, this is just in a warehouse, this is an old fuselage, that influencers book, they go in there with a camera crew, and they change into these outrageous outfits and stuff, and there's a psych out there, a canvas of clouds going by, and they're like, oh, I'm on my way to Cabo, I'm on my way to Paris, I'm on my way. They'll do eight or ten different shoots in 30 minutes and then go sprinkle those out throughout the year. Like they're living this huge fantasy life that kids then compare themselves to. And they say, well, I went to the 7-Eleven and, you know, got some Cheetos. Well, that's not much of a comparison. The data tells us that they are getting their driver's license later. They're socially interacting less. They're simply not engaging with friends, they're confusing clicks and likes with connections. I'm really wondering if, and it's not just technology, but as you say, that is a big, big factor. And you add to that concierge parents who won't let them skin their knees, won't let them experience problems in life. I wonder if we're really setting them up to be overwhelmed by what's happening in the world. We we 100% are. And, you know, the other day, uh, my students asked me, do you think we're worse at conflict resolution than you were when you were in high school? Hear me out. So I thought about it for a a little bit because I don't want to just snap back at them. And the conflicts I had to manage when I was in high school were real conflicts. There might have been a kid who was like, I don't know, kind of a bully threatening me that I had to like worry about maybe. I don't know. I had issues with my parents. Uh, I played sports, you know, and I had to think about like my friends or relationships, but those were real conflicts and they were limited. The conflicts that they may think they're in could be any number of things that are happening around the world. So that could be drought, famine, political unrest, whatever they see in their feeds, right? It could also be body image, whatever else they're seeing in their feeds. It could also be school shootings because they know about school shootings before. Um, I do. They're the ones who are like, this happened today. And it could also be any other number of things they're seeing on social media. They're not real conflicts in their lives, but they are to them, right? So I asked them, I was like, you know, look, I had to manage maybe two or three conflicts. And we had an old school way of doing it. I grew up in rural Pennsylvania. So you were direct. You weren't, you know, uh, hiding or typing behind a keyboard. Mm -hmm. You knew where the conflict stood. They have at any time, maybe 20 conflicts that are just unresolved that they don't have power on, power over. And if you think about stress, the number one thing that leads to unhealthy stress is when you don't have a locus of control. They feel like they don't have a locus of control in almost every area of their life. And then when you throw in what I like to call the college application industrial complex, because that's what it is, it's overwhelming for them. So I would love to say they don't have conflict resolution skills in, in a very like concrete way because that's how I think a lot of generations see them. But it's also possible that they are overwhelmed by the limitless conflicts that they're seeing that aren't resolved. 
And they also, in their defense, and I think they need one, when we were in school, and I was in and out of school before you were born, but when we dealt with bullies, it happened on the bus dock, it happened in the lunchroom, it happened in the locker room. When we went home, we were safe. Now, the bullying follows them on social media. They can change schools. It follows them to the next school because it's just ubiquitous. There's no way to escape from it unless they unplug. And to them, that's like cutting off their oxygen. So parents can say, okay, you're not going to be on it. You can play your video games, but they don't realize even the video controllers are internet capable. And so they can get right back on that way. I had a mother on the show recently. It was a show we were doing about sex extortion, where these predators are getting on, pretending to be a girl the age of the young men. They've stolen a picture that some young girl has inadvisedly taken with nudity and sent to a boyfriend or whatever, but they hack into her info, get it, and they send it to the young man and say, now you send me one back. Well, he's like 15, and here's this beautiful girl sending his picture, so he sends one back. Bang. Seconds later, they say, hey, I'm not her, and I've now got this picture, and I know your school, your parents, your friends, your contacts. I'm sending it to everyone immediately if you don't send me $5,000. Now, this mother was talking to her son, active in sports, on different extracurriculars like choir, debate, etc. She's talking to him in the kitchen. He's laughing. She's laughing. He goes up and sees that. Fourteen minutes later, killed himself. Fourteen minutes from the time she's talking to him in the kitchen till he took his own life. Now, you said some are not preventable. That's no red flags, no warning signs. He panicked when he saw it and thought, there's no way out. I don't have $5,000. It's going to humiliate my family. My parents took his own life. Some of those things we didn't have to deal with. So in a sense, some of their challenges are legitimately much more complex and much more overwhelming than some of what we had to deal with. Next week on Fill in the Blanks. The reality is, especially when it comes to social media, a lot of kids do face shame and embarrassment, so they may not share it with their friends. And then yeah. if they do share it with their friends and their friends don't actually know what to do, then okay, they're sharing it and someone's not even gonna know what to say. It goes back to the conversation we were having about my students who are taking on talking people out of suicide or talking people down from suicide. If that person now gets a chance to talk about this and understand it, then someone else in their life is gonna be like, hey, this isn't okay. Hey, this needs to change. Hey, what can we do? Who can we talk to about this? Because this isn't right. And I think the thing that we really underestimate about schools in America, we hear so many bad things about schools in America. And we hear so many bad things about education and we hear so many bad things about, you know, what students are going through and teachers and parents and everything. The one thing that is guaranteed in every single school in this country is that there is a few, more than a few adults who care, who really genuinely are there every day of however long their career is because they care about kids. And what we're not doing is giving those adults 
the information that they could actually use in a classroom or in a curriculum that would make a difference. We keep saying we can't do it, we can't do it, we can't do it. We have an unlimited amount of people in this country who are in schools who care and want to know what to do and we're not giving them the resources that could actually help them.